Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope the Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out theringer.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And the Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at youtube.com slash theringer. Um, this is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to a very special social distancing episode of Black on the Air. I'm actually uh, recording from my home today here in Pasadena. And um, the world is a little different from the last time I spoke to you guys. So um, it's very interesting. Very interesting what's going on now. I hope everybody's doing okay. You know, keeping your... Uh, correct distance from each other and everything. Man, my head is just spinning right now as I'm doing this. Um, by the way, we we have a really interesting conversation I have planned for you today. Uh, it's with Connor Doherty um, of the New York Times. And I talked to him a few weeks ago, actually, before this was really blown up like this. And he has a book out right now, The Housing Problem in America. And it's real interesting. It's a great talk. He, he's an awesome guy. So I hope you enjoy that. And, uh, you know, of course, we don't bring up Corona because at the time I talked to him, it just wasn't uh, what it is right now. But, you know, it seems that the housing problem, I think, is going to be a huge issue coming up, too, with this. But, guys, we're in a different world right now. Things have changed so much. And uh, the first thing I want to do is just, you know, just send just love <laughs> out into the world, you know, hoping uh, I, there's a lot of anxiety out there. I've dealt with some anxiety myself. Those first couple of days were just very bizarre. I remember, uh, I think it was just a week ago when I think in the same day, uh, you know, the, it seemed like this was going to be one of those things that we would, you know, we'd handle in a certain way. You know, some people would get it and yeah, there'd be a breakout, but you know, the world would go on and we would deal with it. But it, I don't know if I anticipated how much the entire world would shut down, you know, and in a matter of like, like an hour on Wednesday, I remember everything happened at once. Like Tom Hanks announced that he, um, he and his wife tested uh, positive. They were in Australia. Then the NBA player uh, tested positive and they just shut down the games and Trump came came on television and, and gave his his speech uh, f uh, where he finally started to take this um, seriously, and um, everything just snowballed from there. You know, the entire sports leagues were shut down, cities were shut down. I mean, our whole world changed just in a few days. Even from Friday to Monday, there's been such a huge change. You know, and people are out there acting like we're in a hurricane or there's some natural disaster. I mean, hoarding toilet paper. I don't understand why people are getting so much toilet paper. It just doesn't make sense to me. But I do understand that the anxiety and that feeling. So I'm not going to make fun of those people too much, you know, because I do get it. You know, we're all at home now, but we have to keep our distances. We're in this world, weird place where we all have to kind of band together, but stay apart, you know, as other people have pointed out too, you know. Um, my daughter's home from college right now and she missed out on her graduation, which they haven't officially canceled, but I know that they were, they, they absolutely have to, you know, and even though, you know, it's a huge disappointment, but it's kind of odd. Like we're not, 
We haven't been focusing so much on the disappointments on that. It's really been a time, at least for me as a family, to just kind of have things simple, spending time safely together and everything. And, uh, you know, just being together, I guess, you know, in the most simple way. And man, my heart goes out to so many people who are just, you know, have no way to make money right now, losing their jobs, losing uh, their businesses, which is, you know, probably going to happen. You know, we've people focus on the stock market and that kind of thing, but, you know, that's nothing compared to just the everyday person who just needs to put, you know, you know, most people are living month to month out there, regardless of what the economy says and all that stuff. And when your funds are just cut off, you feel so isolated from the world. I mean, you really don't know what's going to happen. You know, hopefully it looks like what's interesting that they're going to pass this uh, stimulus bill where they're going to put some cash in people's pockets, which hopefully if that happens, will happen soon. Which, by the way, you know, if we're going to jump to politics for a second, is kind of the thing that Andrew Yang was proposing, his universal basic income, the UBI thing. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if something like that um, makes a difference, which I hope it does make a difference for people, if that continues to be a thing, if people have kind of changed their mind on that. We'll see. I mean, that's just a side comment on it. But I am concerned about, here's the thing I'm most concerned about with this, is I really am concerned about the president. I'm not really concerned about the people around him, but I am concerned about the president. And let me say, when I mean concerned, like all the things that I don't like about Trump and not even me, because, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm supposed to not like him. But like, even when you look at people like the uh, never Trumpers, the, the, the people who are supposed to like him and who rejected him, many of the reasons why they don't like him and the reasons why I don't like him are his... I I feel are his horrible leadership qualities. And the specific ones are, rather than focus on leading people and inspiring people, he focuses on boasting about things, you know, and having to be the best in something and, and never admitting like he could have been wrong about something, you know. And it's this oily, you know, salesman, not to knock salesmen, there's a lot of great salespeople out there, you know, and people in real estate, by the way, not to knock that industry, but a lot of his oily type of real estate salesman stuff, you know, and his Trumpy stuff really, really comes across so nakedly just ill-prepared on the leadership stage, you know. He just feels so ill-prepared to lead people. He really does. He only feels, he becomes, Trump to me has become so much smaller right now in terms of uh, in the whole leadership bubble thing. Not that I had him that big, but this is an opportunity for the opposite to happen. This is an opportunity for him to drop all that crap and not be concerned about it and drop all these petty attacks on people because he's still on Twitter making petty attacks, even when, you know, his speech said to drop partisan politics and all this stuff. But, you know, it's clear he didn't write that speech because he went right to continuing to attack people in such petty ways, people. I mean, I really don't care during these times of crisis, you know, whether we have a Republican or Democrat in the White House, you know, that kind of partisanship. I'm not that type of I don't care about that. I just want somebody who's going to lead, you know, and I really want to support 
what the president is saying and all that stuff, regardless of who the president is. And it is just, he makes it so impossible. And, you know, to me, it just makes me more <laughs> angry, more angry than everything. You know, I'm trying to let it go because I'm trying to focus on other things. But I, I think a lot of that bullshit gets in the way of of helping people and actual information when he just focuses on that crap. So we can't rely on the information that he's saying. You know, we have to try to not listen to his bullshit and maybe listen to some of the people around him who hopefully are giving us correct information and not just kissing his ass. You know, there's already been evidence from some of the Republican lawmakers who were very frank in their discussion about this outside of the ears of the president. But, you know, when they talk to private uh, to private groups, but within earshot of the president, they haven't said shit, you know, and have followed kind of that Fox and Friends model of acting like this was a hoax and a liberal conspiracy, you know, and now they're acting all scared and everything's like, well, you motherfuckers help, help spread this ideology. So ugh, this stuff just really makes me mad. So anyhow, you know, and back in the politics thing, this whole Democratic primary is taking on a whole different feeling. You know, I mean, guys, who would have guessed we'd be in this position? Biden seemed all but dead um, at the end of January, beginning of February after Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, he came in. Think about this. He came in fourth and fifth, fourth and fifth. I mean, it was pathetic. You know, like right now. Biden is giving speeches from his house, but he may as well have been doing it back then because nobody was showing up, right? And the kind of comeback that he's made, and now with this uh, pandemic happening and people needing the comfort food that it it seems like Biden is providing to people by comfort food, someone who they're familiar with, someone who has led before, you know, he was vice president for eight years, so he's been, you know, close to the highest position of power like that. I, I think that's the biggest reason why many voters, you know, are comfortable with Biden. You know, who would have guessed that he'd be in this insurmountable position right now as the leader of this race? It's unbelievable. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard dropped out of the race today and has supported Biden. That's crazy. It's crazy. So the meaning of the primaries are a little different now. You know, it a lot of the air has been taken out of it because of what's happened. And who knows what's going to happen in this election? Um, I think I've been predicting, as you know, that I thought Trump was going to get reelected. I don't think that anymore. I think the world is different now. And, you know, the world has changed. He can't ride on the good economy anymore. And I always said that was the biggest thing. And that's gone. And if, if it's a personality contest and if it's a contest of leadership, I have no idea how how Trump wins now, you know? So my mind has changed about that. Um, completely different. That's good news. I know that I'm not putting that energy out there because <laughs> I didn't want to put that energy out there. So energy changed, you guys. Energy changed. You know, I feel like uh, we'll have a, a leader who, though not perfect, at least wants to lead in the proper way, you know? And that would be something good to look forward to, hopefully, you know. Okay, I don't have much right now. I'm going to be checking in with you guys in different ways because we're doing this differently now. I might do, um, you know, some short pods where it's just me talking and that kind of stuff and weighing in and stuff. Might do, uh, oh, I might do some Instagram live events. I did one with uh, 
Tommy Alter last week, just off the cuff, but I might do some more structured things like that with some friends. So look for that. I'll announce that on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, that kind of stuff. And, um, and I'll be doing some other kinds of stuff too. I'm really interested right now. I'll tell you a little personal thing real quick. One thing that I've been interested in for a long time, and my good friends know this and some of my family members, um, this is outside of showbiz, but I really have, I have an interest in the kind of the self-help area, the inspiring other people type of area. And years ago, I developed kind of a philosophy to kind of help people and that kind of stuff. And I've shared it with some friends and other people, and it's really helped them. And I think this is a good time for me to start sharing that with you guys. I've, I think I've shared it a little bit at some point, but I'm going to start doing that in a more structured way. I'm going to be um, doing some um, events with a friend of mine who's an expert in this area. And it's kind of a thing that I'm, I won't say transitioning to, but I'm going to bring more to the front. And it's not, it's not comedy. It's not showbiz. It's all in the, in the area of just reaching out to people, helping people, um, helping people to get clarity in their lives, fulfillment, you know, and, um, you know, just have, live a more authentic existence, let's say, and just just to ease the anxieties of our lives and everything. But it's real exciting, something I'm very excited about. And um, I hope it's something that you guys will enjoy. And maybe, um, you know, who knows? If we can uh, if we can just get out there and make the world a little better, that'd be great. Huh? Yeah. All right. Coming up, we got Connor Darty. Um, really, really interesting conversation. We'll talk about this housing problem in America. All right, welcome back, everybody. We've got a little treat here today. We got somebody who just put a little book out. <laughs> now, this is, guys, this book is a must read, I think, for the state of our world today. It's called Golden Gates Fighting for Housing in America. And Connor Dougherty, hopefully I pronounced that right, Connor, is here. Connor, thanks so much for being on Black on the Air. Thank you so much for having me. I love this show. It's such a treat. I talked to you, you know, months ago about this when you, you told me I met Connor. Uh, when do we? I met you uh, somewhere in Highland Park. We went to dinner. Yes, exactly. Yes, which is a cool strip. And by yeah. the way, very relevant to this conversation because when I've lived in LA in 2000, yeah. that was not a hot area. Yes. Now it's I expensive. People yeah. are being pushed out. You've heard a right. bunch. Of, so even though it was a great restaurant, there yeah. are there are people who are unhappy about. But, the, but this is a good starting point. Yeah. Like for, I mean, this is an issue that isn't talked about that much and I think is not really understood even by myself. There's so many layers, you know, and you give the history of some of this and all that. But what was your way in? Were you observing this or was it an assignment? You know, I know you're a journalist for The Times and everything. Or were you like, look, people got to know about what's going on? (laughs) I think so. If I have to, I'm an economics reporter at The New York Times. So everything I do is probably rooted to some degree in beat reporting. And I think that when you're thinking about the economy, you can get so deep into mm-hmm. interest rates and all these things. But the real sure. big question is, how are we doing? Right. And what are the opportunities to do better? Right. And how many people can access those opportunities in race and class and all these different things? How is opportunity distributed mm-hmm. in America? Because economics is usually so much just left in the abstract. I totally. Think, and not in the practical. Right? Exactly. So mm-hmm. if you go back and look at America at its apex, what we could— Debate how the apex well, looks, okay. but I meant the we call 50s it greatest and, generation. I well, what I meant, like right. the fifties and sixties, sure. obviously there was tremendous racism then, so we can't say everything was better then. No, I, I know but, exactly what yeah. you're talking about. Okay. You know, so 
If you look and you say, why are we the richest country in the world? Sure. What makes us a rich society, not just a country with a lot of rich people? Russia uh -huh. has some rich people, but we don't think of them as a rich society. Uh -huh. Housing was always the singular symbol that our way, our way of life, our economy was winning, was better. Yeah. And there was this famous moment in, I forget exactly what year, but Richard Nixon, when he was the vice president, uh -huh. went to this like symposium. In, in Russia, uh -huh. and they had a model ranch house of the sort you see all around Los Angeles. And he said to Nikita Khrushchev, a steel worker could afford this in America. And he didn't believe it. Nobody believed that there had been all this Russian propaganda saying yeah. this is no more typical of an American's home than the Buckingham Palace is a typical home in England. Wow. And there are all sorts of people around this country who have lived in pretty nice homes. And this having bigger homes, having them full of creature comforts was always for a long time, our symbol that we are winning. Uh -huh. Look at America today. Or being able to, in another place, being able to house your family. Yeah. And having yeah. it be bigger. I mean, right. uh, foreigners have for decades remarked that, oh my God, Americans, even poor people live in very large homes. Uh -huh. They're pretty nice. They're comfortable. That has always been something we did much better than other people. Sure. And now you look at America, and this is not just true in California, although we are the, we are the, the worst child in this, uh, <laughs> in this problem. And There's, you've chosen California as kind of the, uh, the lab for this observation. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And we can get into why yes. I chose that. But, but anyhow, go ahead. But, you know, you look around this country, and uh -huh. there's a huge homeless problem. There's a million evictions a year. Uh-huh. Uh, I think about a quarter of tenants spend more than half their income on rent. So housing has gone from this singular symbol of everything we were doing right uh -huh. to now it feels like a singular symbol of this economy gone wrong. When we ask ourselves, what does the inequality story lo really look like? Uh -huh. It's not just tax rates and all these abstract things we talk about. We go, wow, what it looks like to me is there are some people who are homeless that's the most extreme version of it, but people who live very far away from their jobs and commute three hours uh -huh. or more. Uh -huh. That is what I think inequality actually looks like. And so what I tried to do in this book it, was— is the, housing, is the housing phenomena. Yeah, and also about. most of wealth uh -huh. inequality is housing. Uh -huh. Most of the black-white wealth gap is white families having much higher home equity. Uh -huh. So when Actually, talk Bloomberg just, talk just mentioned this the other day in a statement— uh, part of his plan, uh, people are, just to go off off on a tangent for a second, but people are like, how come black people are supporting Bloomberg? You know, there's this question, stop and frisk. He specifically has targeted home ownership as a means of creating wealth for blacks that they've been cut out of that historically in the ways that whites haven't, you know, and to try to mend that gap through home ownership. It's very, and it's a message that's hitting home with a lot of blacks who have felt that, that arm keeping them at bay, whether through redlining or bank loans or whatever. Totally. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you look at the wealth consequences of redlining, mm -hmm. they're profound. Oh, completely. Absolutely. Uh, generational, you, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's up there on the, like, generational heists of all time. And I, I will say redlining is one term for what occurred, but it's more than redlining. You've mentioned a lot of this in your book, which is great. There's so many stones that you uncover in this book, I go, fuck, I didn't even know about that, you know, that are fascinating of how not just racially, but just the division of class, how it's kept out of certain neighborhoods, class distinctions. And even people who you might disagree with, like Charles Murray, did you ever read his book, Coming Apart? 
I'm aware of it. He talked about this in a different. I've different... read a numerous essays about it, but, but he, yeah, essays I don't trust. Like read the book because I meant his his summaries of it. Yes, exactly. But he talks about this from a different perspective, from a conservative perspective of how these neighborhoods changed and how there is a different feel in the neighborhoods at some point in terms of class. You know, but you know people don't necessarily want you know, mixtures in neighborhoods after a while. Totally. And you see this, this is not, obviously, historically, this has been a white thing because they had a lot of the power. Right. But this is not a universally white thing. Right. There are all sorts of black people you meet. There's one in this book who, and this is not for reasons that are irrational or Mm -hmm. even racist, obviously policing being the like giant cloud over all this, but who like to live in a neighborhood where they feel some degree of comfort Mm -hmm. with people like them. This does not have to be race, although in Mm -hmm. this country, that's what's hanging over it. But you see religious divisions in other countries between people who look identical. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see, obviously, you see class divisions. Mm -hmm. So you do see there is something probably tribal about us, Mm -hmm. but this country is kind of like this grand experiment in trying to break that down. Right. And I think housing, as you see in the book through a lot of these different, there are some moments in the book where I talk about people voting one way nationally in a totally opposite way locally. Completely. Absolutely. And you can see. And so I actually think one of the things I love about this, about doing this book is local government is where so much of this actually happens. We passed uh, fair housing in the 1968 Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. How'd that go for us? Right. Did, I, did, oh, yeah, the next day, all the neighborhoods were just completely integrated, right? Like, so many local governments came up with ways to be like, no, that doesn't apply. Well, it's the same thing with schools, too. Precisely. Mm-hmm. So right. this is where we actually find out who we are. Mm-hmm. This is where we find out, do these things, we do these values we profess to hold and and vote for in these landslide elections and these moments does any of that matter or uh-huh. are we really paving the way for that world to actually be created on the ground? Uh-huh. And I think housing is the singular expression of that because who we're willing to live uh-huh. near and who we're willing to share space with really determines what we really mean. Well, let's get, I want to get more specific. Let's talk yes. about, let's go back because yes. you do a good job of kind of laying it out historically. And I know you, you kind of start with the more of a contemporary story in San Francisco and everything, but you talk about, where you're uh, the post-World War II period and what was happening. Even, you know, you go over to Levittown for a little bit too and talk about that, which is significant. But let's just t- take me through that period of, of how you saw housing developing and the ramifications of that maybe going forward. Is that all right? Yeah. So I think that the history of us mm-hmm. in America, particularly with housing, but with so many things, mm-hmm. kind of begins at the end of World War II. That's when mm-hmm. the economy went crazy. That's when our manufacturing, the kind of good factory jobs uh-huh. that we now miss. That was when all that and, was happening. And yeah. how did housing exist right before this period? So, how right, do you yes. describe it? So at the end of World War II, we had a horrific housing shortage uh-huh. because there had been the Great Depression, right. and then there was the war, and during the war they were rationing, so they weren't building much. Got it. And you read the stories of that time. It's like there was people advertising that you could live in chicken coops. And, oh, and uh, there was a famous uh, ad placed in an Omaha newspaper that said, here's an icebox. Somebody could sleep in this if you right. curled up this way. I mean, it was like a legitimate classified Hobo ad. Hobo living, they call exactly, it. Exactly, right? yeah. So <laughs> there's a huge housing shortage. That was rectified pretty suddenly. Uh, the country built like something like 100,000 homes a year in 1945, and it went to like a million just like a couple wow. years later. I mean, it was 
I mean, you can just imagine how it transformed, like, yeah. timber industries. I mean, all these things. It transformed even the notion of the middle class, right? Totally. It's almost like we created a middle class because it almost seemed like this, the stratification of the haves and haves now was like nobody's ever seen during the 30s, right? Yeah. Totally. Well, right. yeah, exactly. And so we built tons of housing and we built – it's not that suburbs didn't exist at that time, but right. we really built the suburbs as we know them now and mm-hmm. got on a path to most people living in a suburb, which is where we are now. Uh-huh. That's kind of the predominant form of American living. And would you say uh, – sorry, to yeah, sorry no. that those people who lived in suburbs, were they uh, driving to cities for work? Uh, so in some cases there were, and uh-huh. taking trains. What's that book, Revolutionary Road? That's They're kind of doing that. Uh, right. uh, but then, of course, we started to have these factory towns. Okay. I mean, Got and it. if you think about it, the factory town was so different than our economy today where – it's not just Detroit. I mean, if you go to the Midwest, there's Janesville, there's mm-hmm. Grand Rapids, there's all these towns that have very good, solid jobs. I mean, this is mo- obviously most prevalent in the Midwest, but mm-hmm. there were all these towns where they were uh, building kind of these little unit towns where they have a suburban housing around it and then a mm-hmm. factory town. So anyway, so we built the post-war suburbs. One thing I think is important, just kind of around the country, we also did this thing called redevelopment. Uh-huh. which James Baldwin famously called uh, Negro removal. Yes, that's true. But yes. one of the things, and this is something I was talking to somebody about la- uh, last night, at that time with redevelopment, there were some really great progressive plans uh-huh. for what they would do with redevelopment. There were some uh, people were talking about consciously desegregating, creating all, all these different things in cities. And then we built the post-war suburbs. And the, as the crowding kind of, as the crowding problem was dealt with, uh-huh. they didn't want to do redevelopment the same way anymore. And suddenly they used it as an excuse to uh, bulldoze black neighborhoods and do civic projects and stuff like that. I always... And you, when you say that, you're talking about civic leaders or... Yeah, business, uh-huh. some combination of like chamber of commerce types uh-huh. and local. So anyway, we have this big suburban boom after World War II, and that really segregates us. It's not like segregation didn't exist then, uh-huh. but it was not like 20, 30 miles separation where people were really living in like homogenized most people were now living in most white people should note uh-huh. were living in like truly homogenized units that are nowhere near neighborhoods uh, with other kinds of people in them so i think that that created some huge problems that might not have been as bad if we hadn't created this huge separation but anyway so that uh-huh. happened suburbs happened and then and as, as we talk about in the book, and this has been very well documented by other people, this book called The Color of Law, uh-huh. in 19, uh, basically the FHA loans, that the government-backed loans that were helping people buy the homes like and the really – bill and things like that. And supporting uh-huh. the whole housing complex that was being built. I mean, they never built these companies. I always joke that they're like the right. Teslas of their time in that sure. all these government – they, they weren't like real companies. It was like they're real companies with this government funding behind them. Many of the major uh, movements in this country, the movement out west, you know, the suburban movement, were backed by government. Uh, totally. Largesse, let's say. Yeah, and freeways and all Completely. this stuff. Intercontinental yeah. Highway. So anyway, we get this this big suburban thing and— it was almost exclusively given to white people, meaning mm-hmm. black, mixed, that's what redlining is. Mixed race neighborhoods, it's even mixed race neighborhoods, could not get loans, government loans. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the premise of the color of law, which is that 
this is a government-created segregation in that uh-huh. their backing of these loans is what created these these neighborhoods to be so homogenized because uh-huh. if you specifically keep one group of people out of those neighborhoods by not giving them access to loans, I mean, that is that is the government's fault and design. And let's be clear, it's a it's a double dance. You know, it's not just the banks of government, it's the people in the neighborhood too. Totally. You know, this is, um, like, I don't want, I always want to make sure I keep it 100 of the people. The, the way that racism occurred in America was not like the Klan operating in this evil force. This was normal behavior. It was not considered abnormal to society to think that blacks shouldn't be with whites. This is how people thought. So they didn't think they were being evil. You know, they thought, this is just the way the world is, you know. And so there was a collusion of this. It wasn't just like a bad actor. Like, I don't want people to think there was... Like, if not for these evil banks, no, motherfuckers, everybody, they were in collusion of this. They agreed with the people that lived there. It's not like the people wanted something different, you know, and the banks were in the way. The banks and the neighborhoods agreed on this. Well, so there's this famous quote, and I I use it in my book, where Levitt says, I can solve a housing problem or I can solve a race problem, but I can't solve both. Right. And what he's saying, it it looks like such a evil quote. Levitt of Levittown, yes. Mm Mm-hmm which is mm-hmm. kind of the original mass-built suburb. Yes. What he's saying, it looks so evil now in retrospect, but mm-hmm. what he's really saying is, I can't have a business if you're going to force me to build mixed-race neighborhoods because people won't buy it. Right. And he's saying, it's not my fault, but hey, I'm a business guy. What am I going to do? He's not wrong. Right. So <laughs> I, it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a shocking, painful quote to read in retrospect, but right. it does give you a sense of, how someone building a business in a very practical way at that time mm-hmm. was thinking. As you say, it was normalized. Right, so. exactly. He's so not my, an outlier. Right. Yeah, so I feel like the book goes into history at, at one point, and then it kind of brings us up to today and says, okay, we have this huge housing problem. Mm-hmm. We have all these inequality problems and all these things we talked about. How are we going to deal with this? And who are the people dealing with this? And what do their stories look like and how's it going? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about this is you talk a lot about national politics on your show. And well, thank you, Kevin. Well, well, and it's so, <laughs> it's so fundamental. It binds us. Mm-hmm. We all feel like we have a stake in it. We all vote for the same people. The choices are, are get two choices, really. I yeah, mean, at least with president. Mm-hmm. There are definitely only two choices mm-hmm. between the parties. But local government is where so much of the action happens. Completely. It's what and it can be boring, and I think, I hope you agree with this, it does not come off as boring in this book. thousand percent agree. Because mm. anybody who watches Parks and Recreation, which is like not that heightened of a reality if you uh-huh. look at that show, local government is bananas. <laughs> People show up and just give these crazy speeches that sure. may have nothing to do with, uh, with what's going on in the meeting. Right. The city council people are trying to like— manage this unruly room. It's almost like the Simpsons where the town hall gets together and everyone starts sure. just kind of arguing with each other. It's this weird process. I was thinking about this on the way over. It's almost like, I don't mean this how it, how it comes off, but it's almost like everyone is Donald Trump. And uh-huh. I'm joking, but what I don't mean their ideology, but everyone's a rookie. Everyone right. in this politics, in uh-huh. local politics, is like figuring it out as they go along. Uh-huh. And I think that makes it so exciting and funny because they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And, and so one of the main characters in this book is this woman, Sonia Trous. Yes. Who, she's a woman from Philadelphia. 
dropped out of grad school, moved to San Francisco, finds out it's so easy to get a job. Anyone can get a job in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but it's impossible to find a place to afford rent. So she mm. starts showing up to— And this is like 2013, 2012, yeah, something like that? 2011. Okay, uh, so it's pretty recent, yeah. So she starts showing up to Board of Supervisors meetings. San Francisco doesn't have a city council mm-hmm. for weird reasons. and oh, San Francisco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's a county and a city wrapped in one. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so she starts showing up and saying, you need to build more housing. You don't have enough housing in this city. You're building all these jobs creating all these jobs, but not building housing for people who are taking those jobs. This is crazy. And she says, I'm from the SF Bay Area Renters Federation. It's called BARF. So that, mm-hmm. so That's hilarious. this is somebody who truly does not know what they're doing. Now, that might just seem like a crazy story that you could find in any city in America, but suddenly she's got all these followers, all these people from Silicon Valley are giving her all this money. Mm-hmm. And as I kind of track it in the book, there starts to create, so as everyone knows, people who don't want housing near them, are sometimes called not in my backyard. Right. NIMBY. NIMBY, So she shows up and says, I'm the YIMBY. I'm yes in my backyard. Well, she now That's a good acronym. That's better than BARF. Well, Mm. their group that has subsequently Mm -hmm. kind of formed around her and now has thousands of members and tons of money, Mm -hmm. they are called YIMBY. So it's become a... Yes yes in my backyard. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole... Now, and I, and I started tracking this through the course of the book. They had this big meeting in bold. So now there's this nationwide YIMBY movement. As I've been on book tour in all these different cities, New York, weirdly, Washington, D.C., Seattle, all these YIMBY groups show up to these book events. Uh-huh. And, and, and it's weird. They're like 25. They're super into local government. I don't know about you. I was into like going to bars, meeting girls and stuff when I was 25. <laughs> I was not going to right. planning meetings on Wednesday night. And they're so I was into making this. drunk people laugh in comedy. Precisely, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> or at least trying to. <laughs> I, it, it's like there. Mm-hmm. This has become like a thing in cities sure. around America that younger professional type people are getting really into housing policy, and Absolutely. it's like, it, and that's also what makes it funny is it's become a social scene for them. They say these ridiculous things at these meetings, and so. I feel like I was joking to someone that this book is almost like Parks and Rec in real life, where mm-hmm. you, these people, you're just like, what, what, why do they say this stuff at these meetings? It's crazy. And then, as we can get into, there's, they, are, they tend to be whiter, more professional group. Mm-hmm. Then we have a whole anti-gentrification movement, and they t- sometimes clash with these people and sort of asking how these, these groups can find some common cause mm-hmm. feels like a more important question than whether or not Americans vote uh, for, you know, Bloomberg or Trump or Bernie yeah. or Trump. or. Uh, well, what's fascinating about the journey of your book, too, is that things that start off kind of black and white metaphorically and literally, too, they become a little more complicated, you know, because not all alliances necessarily line up where you think they should line up, right? Totally. And yeah. I tried to go at that with the utmost respect for people's sure. perspectives. Yeah. Because so, many times you say, I might have done that too, right? Well, yeah. also— so I might have voted like that. So I this, can understand that. Yeah, You so, do a lot of that in the book, too. Like, totally. So there's yeah. this guy, Damian Goodman, who I, I met in the book, and he's a big activist in Lamert Park, which I'm sure mm-hmm. is a neighborhood you're familiar with. Here in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a center of black culture in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. It's a really special neighborhood, mm-hmm. honestly. It's, it's not well-known. It's not as well-known as Harlem, but it, mm-hmm. it has— that caliber of history. Right. And he is very anti efforts to make it easier to build housing in that 
type of community because he's well because he's worried about gentrific that, that right. it will foment gentrification. He starts building alliances with people in like Beverly Hills and stuff, right? Because they're worried about it yes. for complete opposite Completely reasons. reasons yes. But he's like, whatever. <laughs> when it comes to stopping something, I don't want to. I'm going to find anybody who will work in there. Yes. I don't give a shit who they are. Yeah. And one of the things I think is uh, is kind of, I think that some people will look at that alliance and go, oh, it's the Beverly Hills people kind of puppeteering the uh-huh. the uh, the black neighborhoods so that they can have kind of like a human shield. Uh-huh. That's bullshit. The many of the activists in anti gentrification or sorry, in neighborhoods where people are worried about gentrification are extremely calculating uh-huh. about who and how they are building alliances. Uh-huh. And I think it's, I think that's to be respected because that's their perspective. That's their agency. That's their, that's, they're not being played by anybody. Maybe uh-huh. at some large policy level, it might not work out for them as well. Cause if we don't build as much housing, it will start to create more gentrification. I believe that. But when it comes to the politics, I think it's terribly demeaning uh-huh. to portray people in anti-gentrification alliances as being kind of controlled by these other groups. Mm-hmm. How would you define gentrification? I feel like it's one of oh. those terms that's used in a way where we're supposed to automatically take sides on it, but I don't think it's ever really examined for the actual, like what actually occurs. You know? so, Cause I've made jokes about it and everything. So yeah, I don't want to fucking Starbucks in my name. Wait, they have lattes, you know? <laughs> right, you know? So I totally, Oh, there's jobs. Well, well, what does it mean exactly? You know? Yeah, I totally agree mm-hmm. with you. And, I mean, I'm super, I'm super interested in you asking that question because I actually thought uh-huh. I may do this, so nobody steal this. But I, I thought about for the times we've done a lot of things where we ask readers to submit things and then we create graphics. I think famously we did one where you balance the federal budget and you see that people oh, wow. do it pretty yeah. even-handedly. They they start cutting defense spending a little bit, like mm. when you actually ask them. So when you, you have do to, it, right? Hands on it, yeah. Yeah, you find out people aren't nearly as ideological. As they as they claim to be, mm-hmm. or as their that. politicians right. claim that they, I are. completely believe that because you're forced to take a side on something totally. as opposed to forced to do something. Exactly. Right. So I've always asked, I've, I have been truly thinking, I have to figure out how to design it. What is gentrification? Because mm-hmm. we don't really. Does gentrification mean? Does it have to be white? Right. Does it mean only higher income people? Does it have to mean you're displaced? Right. Typically, do, do, those are good questions. Yeah. If we built a ton of housing and all the people who currently live there had the option to stay, they, uh, but we also had a lot of wealthier housing there, would that then be gentrification? Even if it, it mm-hmm. right? So I does the color of the people doing the gentrification make it not so, gentrification or not gentrification? There's a professor at Columbia yeah. named Lance Freeman, African American himself, and he has done a bunch of studies. That essentially say that most gentrification in black neighborhoods is black gentrification. So Harlem being the sure. the most uh, prominent example of mm-hmm. this. It's kind of the idea behind empowerment zones. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I when it it's a loaded term mm-hmm. in the political context, but when you ask what it really means and what it looks like, it becomes a complicated term. Mm-hmm. So for instance, so there's a whole saga I follow in this book. This is not exactly gentrification, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's it shows you kind of you said this book is not very com- is uh, is complicated. There's this girl who comes home. She's 15 years old. She comes home one day, finds a note taped to her door, says your rent's going up 800. dollars 
She's a Latino girl in Redwood City, which is in the Silicon Valley, but I picked it because it's a very typical city. It doesn't, it's, they don't have rent control. They don't have any tenant protections. It right. could be any town USA. And she starts organizing, figures out how she wants to fight the landlord. Uh-huh. I should say, just to give you a sense of who she is, her mom, who I is in the book as well, she's a, she does elder care, cleans houses, and then uh, moonlights as a janitor. So she's right. like the person who takes care of your granny, uh-huh. the person who cleans your house under the table, and the person who comes in to empty the trash cans and stuff as you're leaving the office high and you kind of give uh-huh. them away. She's it's, all those people. It's that working class. She's all those um, people uh-huh. in one day. Right. So they organize. They get a crappy buyout deal, meaning that the landlord just says, here's 1500 bucks if you leave quietly rather than protesting me all the time. Uh-huh. And oh, let me ask you this yeah. question. When they put a sign like that, is that circumventing what's legal about the ability to raise rent a certain amount? Is, oh. the, is it circumventing that by doing this? Or? So in L.A. Because there are laws against certain Only in some of, places. Oh, okay. Rent control is incredibly rare uh-huh. in America. It's in L.A. It's in Oakland, San Francisco, New York, a couple other places. Uh-huh. Most states— not only don't have rent control, they have a state prohibition on even contemplating rent control. Like the uh-huh. state says, no city can even think about this. So that's why I picked that city because okay. that city is what most Americans are going through. Mm-hmm. I was actually very – I wanted a place that didn't have a lot of tenant protections because yeah. that's typical. If sure. I, in San Francisco, they have a ton of tenant protections and the story would have been totally different. The person would have been like, I'm going to the tenants union and, you know. Sure. Well, the story may be the other way around. It may be too much tenant protection at the expense of... Of mobility and... Yeah, so... Exactly. Anyway, Mm -hmm. after they get kicked out, uh, priced out, I went to go meet the family who moved in because I wanted to see this whole process play out through the eyes of one Mm -hmm. apartment. It's another Latino family with almost the exact same jobs. The two brothers worked construction and the mom did some house cleaning. Mm -hmm. But they just packed eight people into the same apartment that used to have four so that they could afford this much higher rent now. Uh That's extremely typical. So that's not gentrification, right? You would never call that gentrification. Uh But it's like more like churn. It's all these people Uh kind of constantly churning with each other to, to... to fight each other over this very, very, very small supply uh-huh. of, afford- of of apartments that, I, mean, I don't want to call them affordable, it was like 2500 bucks a month, but that they can even afford, meaning that aren't more than 100% of what they make in a, in a, in a, in a month. Uh-huh. So I think that when you watch that story, you see that there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of jobs for all different incomes of and all different kinds of people in in places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, all these booming cities in America. But there's so few affordable apartments that even even poorer people are competing with each other like mad. Uh-huh. I mean they don't think of it that way, but when you really look at what's happening in the market by following stories like the one I followed, you can see there's this feverish competition for any space. Uh-huh. And so I think that that kind of then leads the story back to the to the BARF people, which is how do we actually create through the political process more housing uh-huh. and more affordable housing as well. And so I'm trying to kind of like weave together these stories like from the very poorest people uh-huh. in uh, – and then there is some time at a homeless encampment and all that. But I was more interested in the working poor, frankly, because sure. I kind of felt like when I see people working at Target, I just always ask myself like, where do they go? How does this work? Right. Is the, you know, and San Francisco is an interesting lab. 
at you chose because it seems to be have a lot of extremes built in there and you touch a little bit on the tech companies kind of you know these are my words but kind of artificially inflating prices there you know in areas where it makes it almost impossible for people to live in unless you make crazy amount of money but the people who make crazy amount of money don't necessarily want to live there too. totally so <laughs> it's like this this paradox that's happening there you know it's it's the <laughs> it is the poster child for what has gone wrong yeah, in America. Yeah, it's crazy. It makes my head explode. Well, I picked San Francisco for a couple mm-hmm. reasons. One, because it's funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, the pages on this book turn because people do crazy-ass shit. Oh, completely. And when you... it's, it's San not, Francisco gets the crazy stuff out of its system yes. so we don't have to do it in the other cities. Well, just yeah. Sonia with barf. Like, in yeah. most cities, people would be like, get the fuck out of here. But what happens in San Francisco? Some multimillionaire founder of Yelp I mean, a guy with hundreds of millions of dollars is like, oh, my God, I love what you're doing. Can I give you some money to do mm-hmm. more? Uh, it's crazy, right? So it's a fun place. But the thing is, San Francisco, it might be more extreme, might be funnier, but it's so typical mm-hmm. of where America is these days because we have this bifurcated economy. And the, and the economy is a lot of people making pretty good livings, uh, in some cases, Mm -hmm. astronomically good livings Mm -hmm. in what we call like knowledge industries. You know, it could be comedy. It Mm -hmm. could be, uh, it could be comedy and entertainment, but it could be also, you know, streaming, all those things. Mm -hmm. But obviously the poster child for it is tech. Right. It's kind of based around finance. Let's call it data as the, as the heading, because data could be a lot of things, right? Well, as opposed to a product. It's people whose Mm -hmm. minds or talent is multiplied by some sort of device. So you're a funny guy, mm-hmm. and you and I are sitting in this room right now, and you're entertaining me with all the performance stuff you've learned after all these years of being in bars. I'm but, juggling as we're talking. That's what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Guys. No, but I mean, <laughs> you've, you've built this skill set, but what makes it so valuable is that you have a microphone, right. and there's an engineer in the other room, mm-hmm. and then there's the Ringer Network, and all that takes what's happening in this room and allows you to talk to all these millions of people, and, and, and you can make income from all those millions of people. Right. Charlie Chaplin. Was the, was the poster child for this where I was going to stop saying poster child. Of no, no, no. Uh, okay. And early in his career. You could say could, daguerreotype if you go back far enough. Well, so early in his career, he could only talk to stages, uh, only work in a theater. Mm-hmm. And that highly limited how well he could do because he got to pack the place. By the end of his career, there were movies. And if you look at his income over time, it's indicative of what happens, right? So there's all mm-hmm. these people in the country who some sort of device, be it a microphone or a software platform or whatever, is making them wealthy beyond imagination just by the power of their mind or uh-huh. what they can build with software or stuff like that. Uh-huh. And then there's service people, people like this woman who cleans houses, uh-huh. people who uh, teach gym classes, people who uh, do uh, retail jobs, people who do all sorts of different things that we need in a day. Those people not only don't get paid as much because they don't have the benefit of this like multiplying device with microphones and computers, Uh but they have to be near these other people because they're essentially waiting on them. Uh So our economy is bifurcated into these people who, who through the power of technology can make all this money and do very well. Uh And knowledge industry is the kind of the thing that's growing a lot. Again, tech is the the main version of this. The richest man in the world made his money through tech. And then there's all these other people who have to be near them. And our housing market does not like at all reflect that a, that, that the economy is so stratified, but also B, they have to be next to each other. Uh-huh. The economy is constructed so that these people are working side by side. And right now they just don't live side by side. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying we have to build some, 
you know, crazy utopian neighborhood where the richest person is living next to the poorer person, poorest person. I'm just saying right now, the, the people in the service sector have to commute two, three, four hours to right. get anywhere near them. And that just seems terribly unfair. Mm-hmm. And that is what I hope we can, with through policy and local politics and all these horrific fights I, tr- I track in the book, mm-hmm. that is the problem I want to see solved. And what about the middle class, you know, person, the, the nurse, the teacher, you know, the people in, that are not in the service industries, but they're not in, you know, the, the upper level industries too, because they seem to be caught in the biggest trap in this, you know, not able to afford the more expensive housing because housing, and I want to ask you this question too, about why have prices increased, not just in California, but everywhere over the past 40 years, if you start from 1979 or 1980 to now, only education, which is also a thing I'm really mad about, those two sectors to me have increased in ways that no other sector in America has, you know. So, And I believe has affected the middle class people who were able to afford, like my parents, who are, their house was $13,000 when they bought it in 1962, you know. And my father was a probation officer and you know, my mom didn't work. The ability for, that's, you know, what I mean, that's not a service job, you know, that's more of, you know, it's in a different arena. But they had the wherewithal to have a nice home for their family and stuff, you know. So... What's what happened there? <laughs> you know, totally. Because people coming out of this is what's going on. People are coming out of college with degrees, you know, who want to go in certain types of jobs, and the thought of getting a house is alien to them. Totally, and, right. and the home ownership rate amongst young adults is at like a multi-decade low. Correct. Like Molina's like, this is just never going to happen. Totally. So right. I think that you bring up an excellent, excellent point, which is that the so-called missing middle right. is who is hurt the most in this conversation because nobody's trying to pass a big government program right. for them. And honestly, they wouldn't want it. They don't want to, f- I mean, I'm not saying they wouldn't want no, it. No, I know what you just mean. They, people who work really hard, go to college, become a teacher, uh-huh. don't want to think like, oh, I, I have to go fill out some form to get my house. They want right. to just be participating. And they've, I think they generally understand this is a lower paying profession and I make that decision. Yeah. But I want to have some cl- but it's stake not poverty in this level Exactly. Either. Right. They have... Like totally. people can make, we're, people can make $200,000 a year and not be able to afford to yeah, visit out so to California. I think, you know? yeah. So, so those people, that class of person, journalists are kind of in that class, mm-hmm. uh, is, is someone we should be thinking about. So what we need to do is figure out some way to build a lot more housing and to build a lot more housing pretty much where people already live. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying... I th- we have to figure out how to do that, how we do that through a democratic process, what mm-hmm. neighborhoods get touched and whatever is a highly complicated thing that I track in this book. And I'm not trying to say this is a good idea. This is a bad idea. I'm just trying to say, here are the people having this fight. Let's just talk to them and watch them have that fight. Mm-hmm. But we need to build a lot more housing and we need to build it where people already live. Unless we build some rocket car that allows people to live in Bakersfield and commute to L.A. in a reasonable mm-hmm. time, that's probably what we're going to have to do. And then we need to build more higher density housing. I do not mean 34-story luxury condo with a $10 million penthouse. I mean uh-huh. like old Philly row homes, three-story, no elevator, kind of those blocks you see in Baltimore and places like that, which though they look, don't look terribly good right now, uh-huh. they, they, there was a time when they were thriving places. We could build that kind of housing again. It has to be compact, but it doesn't have to be 
the tallest possible mm-hmm. thing. So, so it's kind of going away from the model that the fifties promised. Um, it seems like you're salt. You're a little salty. These are my own words. Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little salty about that single family home with the big lawn and that type of thing. And I'm like, yeah, as right when brothers can start getting this kind of stuff, kind of salty about people having these. Uh, so <laughs> that's my own editorial about it. Uh, I should say my wife is uh, African American, and okay. she, no, matter. no, I didn't mean. No, I'm not. I'm matter. not. Don't. I'm, you're still salty. I didn't yeah. mean it like that. Here's what I'm saying, just to play. I did. I've never said that in an interview, but here's all I meant, dude. Let's don't do that in. to me. And she said the other day, someone in San Francisco was giving her this whole socialist thing, yeah. and she goes, mm, "We that. just got here. Exactly Can you let me look around for a That's little while?" That's what I'm saying. She, uh, Help the brother out. She said, "We just got here. I want to hang out at this party for Thank a second. You. And see if I like it. And then you can start talking to me about this socialism that's, bullshit. That's my like, only problem with Bernie Sanders, who I love. But I was like, hold on, Bernie. Brothers are just starting to get theirs. Yeah. Now you want to redistribute my, my shit? <laughs> yeah. So, no. and But that's serious mm-hmm. stuff. So, Lamert Park, this guy, Damien, that right. is a lovely, lovely neighborhood. Right. Anybody would go to that neighborhood and be like, wow, this is really nice to get this right. wonderful retail strip. The houses are these cute yeah. bungalows. And so they are actually trying to protect that neighborhood for many of the same suburban kind of reasons that that you just laid out. Yes. So I I totally appreciate that. I don't know what to say other than we've built a shitload of jobs in the middle of these cities. Mm-hmm. We created huge demand for people to work in these places. Right. We don't have places for them to live. We got to fucking build them somewhere. <laughs> right. So it's not, I, I, I'm i not trying to, oh, man. I, well, I'm just saying, it's like, it's not, I, I feel mm-hmm. like there's this imbalance everyone created right. and then they act like they didn't know it was happening. I mean, look at, this is where the Silicon Valley gets bananas. Mm-hmm. You go look at, I don't know if anybody who's listening or you have seen the Apple headquarters, but it's this yeah. iconic spaceship looking flying saucer thing in the middle of Cupertino, California, which is not a big place. They didn't build any housing around that. So that's like the equivalent of like a gigantic skyscraper in the middle of this little town. Like people know that people are going to work there all day. Uh If they're not going to build housing for them, there's going to be a lot of traffic. So I don't think, I think it's like pretty dishonest to be like, oh, let's put the giant office building there. Oh my God, we don't have enough housing. We didn't know this was happening. Save my neighborhood. It's kind of like you were you yeah. were creating the conditions for your neighborhood to be kind of a place where people want to build. Yeah, but that is your decision. You you are sending your city on mm-hmm. that trajectory, and you're going to have to own up to the responsibilities of having to house some of the people who work there. How much of an influence, you know? Because the tech thing is kind of an interesting thought. I have different feelings about this whole notion of. Um, I'm not going to pick on any one company, but I have a couple in mind where they have this entire ecosystem, you know, and um, you want to go to the cleaners? You don't have to go out of these walls. We got a cleaners here. You want to have lunch? We got free lunch here. Why do you need to go lunch? And it to me, it eviscerates small businesses that could profit from that, from the people who are making a lot of money to use the businesses in the city to help the city thrive, you know? So it's in it's in this walled environment 
where it's like, hey, how about I get away from this place for an hour for my lunch? How about that? Totally. You know? But it wants to keep everything there. And, you know, it's not just one company. There are many tech companies that do this now. And to me, that hurts local economies and has an effect on this as well, don't you think? This comes up constantly, the local yeah. businesses in Silicon Valley I think and it's stuff. really in San Francisco in that area where – and people are traveling through on the buses and all that stuff. So it's not <laughs> only – so everything you just said, mm-hmm. on top of that, it's really socially corrosive um, because whether or not people are subliminally getting the message, yes. their neighbors right. are subliminally getting the message, you have no stake – in the yes, in the That's in, the, in the public challenge, correct. You don't fuck your public transportation system because yes. I don't have to deal with exactly. it. Exactly, that's uh, exactly right. I don't care that there aren't enough healthy options at that deli. Doesn't matter because we got quinoa at the exactly. at the corporate cafeteria. Totally mm-hmm. agree. So there, there can be a, a sort of contempt that's kind of underneath of there for you know just. Uh, public accommodation for businesses and all that kind of stuff. Totally, yeah. and yeah. I, I think I don't think the tech companies like went into it. No, of course I think not. Just, but yeah. it does start to it, it subliminally sends the message to people: you can't. We do not have to worry about the same problems right. as you, and so we're not going to participate in trying to solve them democratically. It's anti-community, as far as I'm concerned. It totally, really is. and yeah. and and this, I truly believe that many so. When uh, there's a number of points in the book where you have people like this Damian Goodman uh-huh. uh, or, or, or a bunch of anti-gentrification activists in San Francisco uh-huh. fighting with these kind of Yimby people who tend to be younger professionals in San Francisco. They are heavily weighted in the tech industry. Uh-huh. And sometimes they're fighting over things that I'm like, why are you fighting over this? Like the need to build more housing is so obvious uh-huh. that you should be fighting over how or where, but not the fact that you need to do it. And I think that social corrosion that you and I just discussed yes. creates a situation where people cannot believe that the other, that people behind that wall have any stake in, in their community. Uh-huh. So whatever solution they're offering, it can't possibly be a, a one that could benefit all people uh-huh. because look at how they live their lives. They live their lives behind these closed doors. I don't want anything those people are offering because I don't feel like they have a stake in in the same problems that I'm experiencing. Right. And, and I think that's really bad because sometimes it closes people off to ideas that sometimes might be good ideas uh-huh. in and, both directions. And they, they become ideological rather than practical. Yeah. And right. one of the things I love about local government, though, is there's no fucking Democrats. Yeah. The public. There, it's, there's, it's so— That's hilarious. It's, it's like you go to Texas— People are like, free market, no regulation. Fuck that. You're not building a giant <laughs> yeah. building next to my ranch house. No right. way. I'm going to yeah. pass whatever law to make sure that can't happen. Exactly. The arm of the state is my friend there. Flip side, you see all sorts of people in San Francisco who are like, oh, you know, sunshine and daisies, eat the rich, whatever. Yes. Fuck that. You can't build an affordable housing complex near me. My house is worth $5 million. Right. No way. So you see all— Yeah, they support it in the abstract but not in the practical. Yeah, and, right. and I, I like that about it. I think it—because mm-hmm. it, it, it makes us ask what we're really for and what we're really willing to sacrifice. Yeah. And, and, I, and also how we're going to, like, actually create a more equitable kind of cohesive society. Mm-hmm. You know, the kinds of things that great public schools used to right. do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that, so I, 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 this is why I thought it was fun to focus on 
the book is about all of America and housing, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about the Bay Area. Uh-huh. And the reason is to kind of like really unpack how local government works. I mean, you couldn't do that in every place. You kind of just got to like pick a place and be like, right. what do city council meetings look like? And how does zoning work? And how uh-huh. to, there's this whole other narrative, the one that President Obama tweeted. Uh, so I ran an excerpt in the New York Times about uh-huh. this suburb that is fighting an apartment complex, which is, of course, this like classic story you could find right. in any city in America. And it's about this city manager, which is kind of like the effective CEO of the city, uh, trying to find some middle way. And he just gets pulverized from (laughs) one group being like, I want it bigger. And the other group being like, I want it smaller. And then he just like has to resign in the middle of the whole thing. That story, which, which again, so that became an excerpt in the New York Times. That was the thing President Obama tweeted. And that story is so typical where Uh people are trying to build slightly higher housing density and that and I should say it's a suburb but it's like not that it's like 5 miles from Oakland it's uh-huh. it's it's right there next to a giant job center so i think that looking at how local governments like that work that is by and large who gets to decide where how and at what cost we build shelter this human thing uh-huh. uh human need human right in america and so unpacking how those Million little city councils are who determine where and how and how much we build shelter. Uh And that's like this profoundly important thing. Yeah. The other thing, though, I would say, and this is the part where I'm super optimistic, Uh people can feel very, very distant from federal government. It's, you know, they get to vote for in the primary and then they get to vote for president. But we got all these things like the Electoral College. And if you're in California, like, does my vote even matter? Because it only matters what somebody in Ohio does or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you can, what can you do? You can write a letter to the president or what, what can you really do? You can call your congressman, all these things. Local government, if you start showing up to a city council meeting, it is insane how fast they will start listening to you. Mm-hmm. So insane that people are like, why are they fucking listening to me? I don't know anything about this. I just wow. showed up to a meeting. And it's actually, it's actually like really cool to see these people showing up uh-huh. and, 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 and realizing like, wow, my local democracy, which has an a absolutely huge impact on my actual daily life, I can have a, an influence on it. I can participate in that uh-huh. to a degree I never thought imaginable. The seat of power could be a folded up chair right around the corner from you. <laughs> yeah, and, and watching these people the inside of this book, in addition to all these individual stories like this 15-year-old tenant organizer and this poor right. bugger in the suburbs and this barf person, and then there's this nun. Yeah. There's this nun in the book who goes around. There's As you said, there's been – so you said earlier there's all these kind of speculators going around buying apartment buildings with with tons of money and then evicting everyone and kind of – uh-huh. Uh, raising the cost of housing, this nun then goes and faces off against those guys and tries to right. buy these apartments before they can get to them. Amazing story. Yeah. 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 So there's all these like lovely stories of these people. But then doing... also realizes that's not very practical too. Well, yeah. she's just, right. she's, it's a thousand cuts, right? She yeah. sees a problem and she tries to solve it right. for her flock. You know, that's her right. role. But inside of it is also this kind of lovely little story of kind of people discovering their political awakening and being like, wow, I can – because there's so many people in politics that they seem like mercenaries. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, from five years old, they wanted to be president, and they became a Rhodes Scholar and whatever, right? 
But then there's also mm-hmm. these people who just sort of like accidentally get into politics. Through, sure. Oh, I just kind of went down there. And then the next thing you know. And those people are so inspiring because they, yeah. they don't know what they're doing. And they are just kind of like figuring it out. And they sort of show the rest of us, well, I could do that too. Yeah. But the, the biggest um, puzzle to me for California um, is the homeless puzzle right now. Because I think there's so many things thrown at it that either make people feel good or it seems like it's the solution. But when you're on the ground, you realize, no, that's not it, you know. And I believe it exists in at least two different forms, and people treat it like it's the same thing. There's what I'll call the lost generation homeless, the people who, you know, either have mental illness or they're they're kind of out of society, I'll call, you know, um, where they're rowed back in either through jobs or whatever is is such a Sisyphusian, you know, road back to normalcy. It's almost impossible. And then there's the the broken working class homeless, you know, people who families, some families are intact. There's a story about this in the news this morning, who just can't afford a place to live. You know, they're staying in motels, sometimes living in their cars for a time, you know, depending on who it is. They're, they're transient through like relatives and that kind of stuff, but they're basically homeless. They're, they may not be on the street all the time, but they're basically homeless, you know. And there's two different solutions for that. It's not the same problem, you know. I totally agree. So uh, without making this some huge uh-huh. policy discussion, right. you can save those. You can prevent that working poor class population uh-huh. from becoming homeless for startlingly little cost. Uh-huh. I mean, sometimes an intervention of six, $700 at like one moment uh-huh. can prevent their life from spiraling out of control. Yeah, that's true. And uh-huh. so policy should recognize that. There's uh-huh. so many cheap solutions to this, that being yes. one of them. And at a local civic level that doesn't require, you know, all this you yeah. know, gargantuan things that are hard to get past. Totally. Right? And then at some uh-huh. larger level, we have to build kind of what we call like radically affordable housing, uh, you know, where you can get like a, some kind of apartment for like th- 300 bucks. Uh-huh. So you know what I always tell people? I love this story. Remember Big, the movie Big with Tom Absolutely. Hanks? Okay. Yeah. So there's this, he, becomes, so the kid goes, he makes the wish, and the next thing you know, he's Tom Hanks. He's uh-huh. a 12-year-old kid, suddenly he's Tom Hanks. And he goes home, and his right. mom's like, who the Tom fuck Hanks. are you? And thinks he's like a child molester or whatever. It's like, I'm Tom Hanks. What yeah, exactly. Come on, you and saw he, Splash, didn't And you? he can't, uh-huh. <laughs> he can't, uh, he can't stay there. And then he goes to his buddy, and he, of course, can't stay at his buddy's house either, because he can't be like, this is my 30-year-old friend, right? So I love how well you remember the plot. Exactly. Okay. Well, I did go rewatch it the other day. <laughs> right, okay. So they have to go find him a place to stay, and they have, like, they, they're mm-hmm. like 12, right? So they don't have money. They go to New York, and they go to this t- terrifying hotel where the guy has to give them the sheets, and the guy has, like, no teeth. Right. And then they go up to the hotel, and they hear, like, gunshots next door. And they're freaking out. And, and they go to F.A.O. Schwartz and they're dancing Well, before the that, before that. <laughs> and Tom Hanks like starts crying and puts the dresser yeah. in front of the door. That room had a bed. It was probably like a wire bed with a plastic mattress. And then there's no bathroom, no sink, no nothing right. in the hotel. There used to be, those are called single room occupancy hotels. Yes. SROs. There used yes. to be tons of those. What Around to city, they, they're like luxury condos and stuff now. They destroyed wow. them all. So that used to be where people who we now see homeless used to live. It used to be possible yeah. to be like a kind of a like a day laborer who yes. who kind of occasionally worked, maybe drank too much, whatever. But you could take five, ten bucks, right. go get a room for the night. Some people called them cage hotels, and you could stay 
in a place like that and be housed. We essentially did not have homelessness in this you country. You see that in the—my in, my brain is now searching all the old movies where you see that type of housing. Spider-Man used to live in an SRO. Wow. Yeah, what was the Hitchcock movie with—what's uh, his name? Where he was the uncle, and uh, he started off in one of those—he turned out to be the bad uncle or whatever it was. Like, yeah, we uh, used to have— Shadow of a Doubt. Like, it starts off he's in one of those, you know. Totally. Yeah. So we used to have housing like this. Yeah. And it's gone. So some way we're going to have to rebuild this radically affordable housing mm-hmm. that reflects the wages people are making now. Yeah. Uh, this is a good segue. Are to people something. too snotty for that type of thing? I feel like a lot of a lot of society, this is right and left, they're kind of class snotty. I totally agree. So you know yeah. what I say to people after giving this whole yeah. SRO thing I just told you, is it's almost like we need more bad neighborhoods. Yeah, that's hilarious. It's like, I mean, yes, it's counterintuitive. Where's the neighborhood with the shitty pawnbroker <laughs> yes, and, yes. uh, and the pool? Yeah, like, yes. we need a couple more of those. Yes, Everything's too fucking pool. nice now. Like, Thank you. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's, it's nuts, right? And, right? and I say this, like, jokingly. We're the bad hookers. I don't want these high-class hookers. Uh, yeah. We're the bad hookers. Yes, exactly. Where <laughs> and Well, you know, it's funny. My, my dad took me to New York. When I was like, I have this memory of it, and you yeah. would see hookers right. like full on, and and that's like not the case anymore. Yeah, and so we that's need to build like more shitty ass neighborhoods yes. where people can get an apartment for like three, four hundred dollars. Right. You asked New earlier, York is an example of this too. The New York, which was you know New York, almost went insolvent you know a while ago, but. You could live in New York, you know, many different classes of living in New York. Fran Leibowitz talked about this, I mean, at one point, too, where after the Disneyfication of, you know, Times Square and, and you know, Manhattan, it's impossible. You either have to be a complete bohemian or rich to be able to actually live as a family in New York. It's almost impossible now. Totally. You know? and, mm. and this is the part that I think is, this is where the economics stuff, I think, is yeah. serious, is... The best thing you can do— And people liked all the cleaning up, by the way. Yeah, totally. It's not like people are like, stop cleaning up our city, you know? Well, because it looks nicer. It feels <laughs> yeah. nicer. But nobody mm-hmm. thinks like, oh, maybe maybe there was a role for that. <laughs> yes. So, this is such a—this is really fucked because you don't want the other thing. It's yeah. like you really don't want but that. But when it turns into a homeless right. encampment I know. down the street from you, it makes really you feel don't like want shit when you drive past it. It's the lesser of two evils in some ways. Yeah, yeah and I—by right. the way, I shouldn't say— Makes you feel like shit. I mean, they no, feel like I everything feels like shit. So it's, there's a lot of shame associated with that. Yeah. Of course, of course, it's, there is. So yeah. you know, by the way, I was at a I was at a uh, an event the other night in Seattle, and this woman came up and asked a question that fucking blew my mind. And I said to her, "You just blew my mind. I don't I don't have a response to mm-hmm. this." But she said, "What do you think the psychological cost of all of us driving past this mm. and not feeling anything is? Yeah. Like we are killing ourselves right. slowly by." By just accepting this as normal. And I was like, I was like, I, I like I said, I didn't have an answer. I said, you have contributed a great thought to this room, and let's just all sit with it for a second and mm. then move on to the next question. But uh so I think that on top of so just getting away from homelessness for a second, mm-hmm. the best thing you can do in America. To give people a chance to give, so you're from LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up uh, like out in Pomona suburbs. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're. Mm-hmm. It's all. There's no LA. Mm-hmm. There's no San Francisco. There's no Seattle. There, there are these giant metro areas that mm-hmm. are operating as this kind of interconnected region. Uh, those places 
where innovation is happening and comedy is happening and these industries and streaming is happening. It's all these industries that aren't just for stars like you. There's all sorts of people who work in these jobs and good jobs Uh to kind of create this apparatus, create these shows. Uh The opportunity to just be near that is, that is a huge chance for somebody to better themselves, to enjoy the American dream and to to get a better income. Uh And when Detroit was kind of the industrial engine of its time, all sorts of people were moving there. They were creating a middle class. They obviously had tremendous race problems, so it wasn't like it was perfect. Right. But there was a escalator that people could get near. Yes. What pisses me off, and what I think is incredibly unfair to the rest of America, is that places like Silicon Valley, when when those when you think about them, you think, oh, it's like impossible to live there. It's like some insane privilege to even be in San Francisco. Anytime I travel uh-huh. anywhere, and this is becoming increasingly true of L.A., People say to you, oh, my God, it's so expensive to live there. I don't know how you manage it. Uh That's fucked up because it shouldn't be that places that contain the industrial engines of our time Uh are seen as some, like, insane luxury to even live near. And I'm not saying you have to be able to live in the best neighborhood of Palo Alto or right above the BART stop in the Mission District. I'm just saying, like, somewhere in the vicinity that you can get to work and pick up your kids after school in a, like, reasonable way— and it's to, to lock that off. That's why the book is called Golden Gates. It means that it's kind of this metaphor for we have gated off in the form of high housing prices, in the form of gold, these engines of prosperity. Uh-huh. And that is bullshit, especially since, I mean, you look at like Silicon Valley and stuff like that. Half the Silicon Valley is just defense department spending, uh, d- defense department spending. You know, all these technologies were created through huge government uh-huh. initiative. Absolutely. So that means the rest of America and in our in, in America through you know the decades, they played a fucking huge role in building those companies. That's not some San Francisco doesn't own that shit, and uh-huh. so kind of walling it off from the rest of the country, uh, and and you know, and and again, this is true in lots of other places, Minneapolis. I spent a lot of time in Minneapolis. They have a huge housing problem. Yeah, uh, I've been there many times. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I think that that is what is, like, so pressing about this, is mm-hmm. that when we take cities where people can better themselves, again, cities being the whole metro region, mm-hmm. and kind of lock, lock people out of them, that is a national problem. Yeah, there's a price to be paid for walling off the cities walling off in different ways, like we talk about the closed economies of tech companies, these housing problems and all these issues, it becomes kind of anti-democratic, <laughs> you know, the society that we're living in, you know, where it's certainly not what Tocqueville observed in the 19th century about the promise of America and why it was so special. That's on, That world is almost gone, you know. Totally. Right. And uh, But I, I think that, but the other thing is so much action is happening at this local government level. Mm-hmm. People are so... People are so depressed about the political situation right now. Uh-huh. And at the local government, you do see people trying to solve problems. It's, and by the way, they're, to really solve this housing problem, you're going to need some large federal help. Uh-huh. But I don't, I, that's like a sentence. It's multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's like a sentence. It's like, fuck, I hope Congress figures it out. Next sentence, right? You know, like right. there's no story there. And, uh, but I think that you see people figuring these problems out, figuring out how to live near each other. Uh-huh. Um, Attacking the inequality. So as I talk about in the book, California passed this really forward-thinking Fair Housing Act 
1963. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Uh, William Rumford, who a lot of people don't know about, this is what I mean by some of the hidden gems in your book, you know, hiding in plain sight, as you say, you know. But uh, the Rumford Act, that was uh, it was passed in 62 or 63? It was passed in 63. In 63. And William Rumford was a, you know, this is a black man who is getting stuff done at a time, you know, when it wasn't easy to do these things, you know. Uh, he's kind of the West Coast Thurgood Marshall in many ways, you know. You know, Marshall was the lawyer who was, you know, doing that kind of stuff. But go ahead and talk about that. You know? no, so and, and also, and I want to set up the antecedent to that, which is just as powerful. Yes. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So in 1963, this guy, William Byron Rumford, who was a pharmacist in Berkeley. Yes. Uh, and had, he was a West, by the way, we don't have anywhere near the time for this. Right. But the, there are some books about the West Coast experience of black people that are so interesting. It's Absolutely. very distinct from the Southern experience. Completely. It's a whole different and, kind of history. And, and Northern and, and Southern California have kind of interesting totally. experience. Your town of Oakland has its own experience. Totally. Too. Yeah. Well, Oakland and L.A. are the only two like real black centers in California. Right. Uh, yeah, that's true. And, yeah, yeah. and, uh, and Berkeley, South Berkeley, but that's a kind of contiguous with right. Oakland. Uh, so he and so this is an important point. So William, there's actually this whole. I mean, we could go so deep into this. But mm-hmm. by the way, I should give a quick plug. Blackpast.org okay. is this tremendous resource. It's like Wikipedia. Oh wow! For stuff like that, but um, for Wikipedia it's for like Black bla- History, like Blackopedia. Well, yeah. no, but it's written by serious researchers. Like you sure. can take the shit in that website to wow. the bank, and like it's nice to be like this is a resource done by very serious people and I'm really educating myself and it's not some internet bullshit. And it's called like, blackpass.org, yes. Okay, blackpass.org. Remember that, you guys. Yeah. Uh, so, the William Byron Rumford was this guy and he passed this fair housing law. I should quickly say, so, there was this guy, D.G. Gibson, behind him who actually figured out that yeah. at that time, cities had district elections and so it was impossible for black political power to 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 it was possible to be big enough to sure. to vote their own representative in, but the state borders were kind of more contiguous with the black neighborhood. So this guy, D.G. Gibson, who's this like unsung hero of California politics, he's a hugely influential figure, mm-hmm. uh, figured out like, oh, okay, we we should go fuck the local government. Let's go to the state because those borders more uh, more represent our neighborhoods, and so we can get political representation that way. And Rumford was his first experiment. Mm-hmm. So Rumford was elected. He passed a ton of great laws. There was a law to um, make it illegal to refuse to cover black drivers for insurance companies. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a huge deal in California if, if you're driving a car. Right. Uh, and then there was a Fair Employment Act, which had mild controversy. Mm-hmm. Then he went to housing. And this is like the, it just shows it's you. Third rail. This is the radioactive mm-hmm. thing. And they there was high drama. They got it passed. I go through the drama in my book, but it was like, the shit passed at 1159 after all these weird legislative maneuvers. Like, I mean, uh-huh. getting – there was a, cro- a protest group that had started sleeping in the Capitol at that time. Marlon Brando went there to support it. It was yeah. this whole big thing. And then – It was it, it was kind of the pre-Berkeley type of move movement, you know, yeah. that was happening there. Right? So it passes. Yeah. And then, as you know, in California, we have this initiative system where essentially anybody, if they can gather enough signatures, yes. can put a law or a proposal for a law on the ballot – the realtor organization was freaked the fuck out for all the reasons that I was kind of talking about. Like yeah. the Levitt guy is like, well, this is going to destroy our business. And, and let me explain that a little bit for people that aren't familiar with this. Yeah. So in California, if you don't like a law, you don't have to be a legislator. You can start an initiative. And all you need is a certain percentage of signatures 
based on votes or something like that. Uh, yeah. The way that it was initially set up. But the initiative movement in California, I don't know if that's the same in every state, but you can cancel shit. <laughs> you, can, you can create shit, yes, cancel exactly. shit. Oh, I mean, we could do a whole fucking podcast oh, and, on that. Absolutely. Well, in San Francisco, they once yeah. passed. I mean, sometimes it's fun, right? So what San sure. Francisco, they once passed a law, passed a whole city law specifically. You guys did this on The Daily Show. Yeah. Specifically to allow one cop to walk his beat with a oh, ventriloquist yeah. dummy, yeah, like they hilarious. had an election over that. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, so it becomes this whole thing. So anyway, the backlash happens fast and furious. So as soon as Rumford mm-hmm. passes fair housing, there's an initiative to cancel, it. and it passes in like a landslide. Yeah, and and it was fascinating because if you look at like a town like San Leandro, uh-huh. which is a white town right next to Oakland, yeah, the 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 voting patterns on either side of that border was crazy. But I think this is a really important moment that foreshadows so much of what we're living right now. Absolutely. So this is just like a year after George Wallace down in Alabama. Mm -hmm. It's like segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So that's what the South looks like at that time. But California is kind of finding this like a lot of the, there's a number of books about race in California and they all use this term polite racism. Mm -hmm. California is framing this basically a statewide segregation law, this the, the, this initiative that would have repealed the Rumford Act would have made it legal for anyone to refuse to sell housing to anyone based on rent or rent housing to anyone based on race. So it's specifically the right to say, no, fuck you. I don't want to rent to you. You're black would have been enshrined in the Constitution. Uh-huh. Truly a statewide segregation bill. Uh-huh. If you look at the way people talked about that, in the election, yes. it's like it's like oh, this is about freedom. This is about property rights. Uh-huh. This is about not telling a man what he can do with his land, right? And uh-huh. and Reagan, of course, starts to emerge around this time, and then runs against Pat Brown just a couple years after. Pat Brown was the governor. Oh, sorry, Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's uh-huh. dad was the governor at the time. Uh-huh. So Reagan and they had a big fight over this initiative, and Reagan starts using all these same kind of property rights terms. Uh-huh. And I think we see so much of that today. No, you're so right. I love this section of the book because, you know, one of my things that I do is language, you know, and language is very powerful. And the way people fought it, you're absolutely right. And this is the thing I hope people take away from this is it was safe language to cover, <laughs> you know, I'll call it horrible opinions, you know, and this was not Republicans against Democrats, this is a collusion of both sides, you know, people who had common interests. Didn't matter. Like, there are just, you know, just as many Democrats as Republicans or whoever. You know, after a while, it kind of, I think, went into one party. But the language that was used to fight these types of things, to me, is what really hits home to me. And you can track that through our politics, whether it's about guns, whether it's about this or that, the language that people use, because they're not wrong. Death taxes. Death tax. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. That one is, that. I mean, shit, that one got me. I mean, the... the, Sure. That's what I mean. They're not wrong. That's the thing about it. And by the way, the left does it in its own way, too. This is not just an observation, and it is from that side, you know. Medicare for all is kind of an example of that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It sounds, it's not like destroy the current public health. Oh, Yeah, it's like, oh, you just, everybody can have it, right? Like it doesn't yes. sound... Uh, yeah, we have a whole discussion on this, but it is fascinating the takeaway from that for something that, you know, should be a no-brainer for most people. And the way that it's fought is by making it something you really can't disagree with. 
<laughs> like, totally. Why should you disagree? For people who are on the sidelines and not really paying attention, they go, oh, yeah, that sounds right. Why would I disagree Why with should this? the government be able to tell you who you can sell your property to? Thank you. That's yes. not fair. Thank you for standing right. up for me. Yes, yes. exactly. Right. And so, yeah. And, and actually, you can also, I mean, so there's so, and for decades, there has been this frame. Yeah. California is a look at the nation's future. And I think part of the history shows that was like totally true. Yeah. Reagan and all these other things were foreshadowed in these state fights. Right. And I think the frame of this book kind of taking these contemporary local fights and saying, this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. Wake up, America. Be fucking terrified when this housing crisis comes Housing crisis comes to your town. Right. Don't let it get as bad as this. And of course, that's why I go to, I try to kind of talk about Minneapolis and other places mm-hmm. in the book. I, I don't spend, I did, I did spend a lot of time there. I cut a lot of the stuff out of the book because it was so the same and it just yeah. felt like repetitive. Sure. But Minneapolis just passed this law that would make it the first major city in America to eliminate single family zoning. So that does not mean you can build a condo next to a giant condo next to like a single family home, but you can build like a triplex, like mm-hmm. uh, kind of like have three units. You could have a split level house with like a little granny flat in the back. So mm-hmm. it's like a, a light density Ooh, and they flat. will flat mm-hmm. out tell you or mm-hmm. a cottage house. And there's different names for these mm-hmm. things. All of them better than ADU, which is <laughs> so clinical accessory yeah. dwelling unit. But um, they will tell you, we are fucking terrified of becoming California. And so we're trying to proactively pass these laws. So we are kind of, we are still a look at the nation's future, yeah. but it's like not a pretty look right now. Uh-huh. And so actually that's, that's actually, again, one of the optimistic things in this book is that you uh-huh. see so much action in other cities who are like, that is a lesson. Yeah. Do not let this happen. So. Well, Connor, thanks so much for coming in. Golden Gate, you guys, fighting fighting for housing in America is a fascinating book. There's so much great information in it, just from a historical perspective. But also, I love your emphasis on the local. And I, I think a lot of uh, even young people. I was just in in um, Georgia, and I was when I was meeting Stacey Abrams, and she had a meeting afterwards with some local people, and it was all about local politics. And I was just a fly on the wall, just listening to it. You know, I'm like, this is fantastic. Just the energy that was in that room, because people they care about what's happening in their neighborhoods and that kind of stuff, and the way that they want to fight for it. I thought this is what it's about, man. You know, you you get these things right. It's not as important, you know the the people in Washington as it is what's going on right there. And if you duplicate that, you know, in different places, it can, that can make a real difference. I feel, you know, not only can it make a real Uh difference, the opportunity to get together to organize around those things starts to create the coalitions that does change Washington completely because suddenly those people are voting block. That's right. And and also just at a more practical level, they like learn how to do shit. Exactly. They learn how to run elections. Right. They learn how to organize their friends and neighbors. They learn how to pamphlet, like all that, like super kind of more brass knuckle shit. Sure. Like once they organize local, and by the way, you see all the presidential candidates when they come to California and stuff. Yeah. They're like, what group do I plug into? Right. Uh, who already knows what they're doing? Sure. And so once once things like housing, it's, that becomes the key to changing national politics. And politics used to work more like that in the past. You know, when you have groups like Tammany Hall, you well, know, in New unions, York. I mean, yes, yeah. in unions and how powerful. And they had a structure to it. And people were in neighborhoods giving away free turkeys. You know, I remember my parents from Chicago and 
near elections, free shit would start coming to you from, from these places. Like they knew how to get to people with that kind of stuff. That's the crass example of it. But there were machines. They were called political machines back then that were operating on that local level to get people you know, focused on those issues and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's, I, again, that's why, and also, uh, not to, not to plug myself too hard. No, I also just don't. think this shit is funny. Like yeah. there are moments, there are moments in this book that will make you cry. Like this 15 yeah. year old girl having her life destroyed by an eviction. Mm. Uh, but then there's also these kooky local characters who are showing up to barf, showing up to city council meetings and like leggings and cowboy boots and being like, you got to change this shit. And, it, it's a wild, funny scene. Again, I keep coming back to Parks and Rec, but every time I watch that show, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is, like, not fiction. Yeah. It is the, uh, the, the, the prophetic show of our time. Golden Gate, you guys, fighting for housing in America. Connor Doherty, thanks so much, Connor. Thank you so much for having me. This is super fun.